All right. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this incredible privilege to dig into your word. We know that you gave us your word, that um, these words are the words of life. Uh, these words tell us about Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we pray that we would drink from it and learn from it and um, enjoy your grace. And pray, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, if, you don't, if you don't have a handout, let's put... Yeah. I am recording. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, good, 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 good catch. Um, handouts are over there. <laughs> so um, we're in the third class uh, of a series I've called uh, 66 Books in 10 Weeks. Um, and the whole idea that I had behind it is that I want to go through the whole Bible really quickly to give you a sense of what each book is about, um, to spark your interest, to spark your own study and reading. Um, and I didn't want to just do like book reports of each book and just give you sort of the content of it in a straightforward way. But um, I wanted to fit it into the larger story so you know what you're reading and how it all fits together. And I also wanted to show how each book is ultimately pointing us and preparing us for Jesus Christ, right? So that's that's uh, the vision of the class. Uh, in the last lesson, if you guys remember, we talked about the story of conquest and the settlement of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And there's a very deep theological uh, meaning in the geography, and I've sketched it out for you. Remember we said that uh, Egypt is uh, where the, God's people were enslaved, right? And it's a picture of our enslavement to sin. Uh, but God brings us up out of that land and into the promised land. Um, and the promised land is described as this um, place of uh, flowing with milk and honey, this garden-like land. So it's sort of um, evoking the Garden of Eden. The people are being brought back into the presence of God. And so it represents the new heavens and the new earth, right? In a very um, abbreviated way, you could just say it represents heaven, but that the people staying in the land was um, always... Oh, and, and let me continue. Um, and the, 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 the conquest of the land began with the book of Joshua. Um, but uh, it took a long time through the books of uh, Judges and 1st uh, first first and 2nd Samuel. And it was not until King David that he finally, truly conquered the land and there was peace for the people of God, um, particularly through um, his son Samuel. And then we, we looked at the importance of 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is where God uh, comes to David through Nathan and gives him this Davidic covenant. Um, I think along with maybe Genesis chapter 12, which is the Abrahamic covenant, this is the most important chapter in all of the Old Testament to helping, helping us prepare for what's coming in the New Testament. The reason for that is that God tells David that um, I'm going to send a savior through your son. He's going to be this righteous king. He's going to reign. Um, it's going to be this glorious reign of peace and prosperity. All the enemies of Israel will be subdued and he will, his, his kingdom will last forever and ever and ever and your family dynasty will never end. And more than that, he says this son, this coming son, 
will have a deep special relationship to me. He will be my own son. And so uh, he's called the son of God. And so uh, that helps us to understand the New Testament a little bit. Every time people talk about the son of God, in the New, especially in the Gospels, they're thinking about the Davidic covenant. They're thinking about David's son, right? Thinking about this righteous king, the Messiah, basically, right? So um, let me write that. So the Davidic covenant is basically telling us about the Messiah. Okay? Um, so that's the backdrop of what we looked at. Um, but then what happens is uh, the later history of Israel after David. And uh, I think uh, we're going to look at several books. These are the books that people don't necessarily know or are familiar with that much. Um, and uh, so I'm excited about this class because we're going to really dig into some books that are more obscure. But um, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely important story. And I think in many ways, um, without this story, you cannot understand the gospel, what happens in the New Testament. This is the dominant um, themes in the rest of the Old Testament, which is that basically it's a story of moral decay. So, so this is Egypt. The high point is King David. Um, even though, you know, we just did a sermon series on King David, there's, there's all kinds of ambiguities and uh, mixed elements, right? There's his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But he's the high point, right? Um, he's, a, he's a man after God's own heart. And then you have this decay, this spiraling downward of unfaithfulness, of disobedience. And then finally, you have invasion. First, the northern kingdom of Israel is invaded by Assyria. Then the southern kingdom of Judah by Babylon. And then they are exiled, Right? taken from the land. And then finally, we have the return from exile. And this, this, this element right here is what we're going to look at today. And it's extremely, extremely important to understanding the Bible and the gospel. And um, it's actually the dominant theme of the Old Testament, if you just count pages. Because this is the age of the prophets. So let's put it like this. This is the age of the prophets. Right? So Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those are the major prophets, and then all the minor prophets. They're all writing in this period, and they're all thinking about the exile, uh, the invasion leading to the exile, and then this promised restoration. So let's talk about the theology of exile and restoration. So as I, as I was, try, as I was uh, hinting at earlier, the people come to the promised land, and it's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of of being in the presence of God, but it is contingent. It is conditional. Um, it depends on the people keeping the Mosaic covenant, right? And so if you, we looked at this, Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are blessings if they keep the covenant, curses if they break the covenant, and the curses are, um, you know, all the uh, plagues and, and uh, disasters that fell upon the Egyptians would happen to them then they would experience invaders and then exile. And it's supposed to evoke the garden of the story of Eden again. Right? Adam. Adam and Israel um, are, e are, are equivalent. So just like Adam was placed in the garden as a test, will he obey? If he doesn't obey, so what happens to Adam? He's expelled east of Eden, um, away from the presence of God. So then Israel replays that drama as a corporate, as, as a corporate Adam. He, Israel is placed in this garden land in the presence of God. 
obey me and you will live, disobey and then you'll be expelled. They disobey and so they're expelled east of Eden to Babylon, which is, um, which, which is replaying the story of the Garden of Eden. And I rem- uh, remember I was saying how the whole point of that is to reinforce the impossibility of human obedience as a path to salvation. And it's just telling us over and over again over this thousand-year drama that we need a, a substitute. We need a savior to do this for us in our place. Um, so the invasion by um, foreigners and an exile is God's punishment for sin. Right? So Babylon, in a sense, then, is hell, right? Um, it's away from the presence of God. Um, so it's re-dramatizing Eden. And this is why the temple is destroyed. Oh, I don't know if I could draw the temple. <laughs> but let's say this is the temple, right? Um, this is... Put some dimension. <laughs> All right. So remember, in Jerusalem... Jerusalem is sacked and destroyed, burned to the ground, and then the temple is destroyed. What does that mean? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful symbol that God's presence is taken away from his people. So not only are God's people cast out of the promised land, but God's presence is no more. So it's all very symbolic, all very meaningful imagery. But then here is the gospel. God promises, so the people failed the test, they're cast out, but God promises a return from exile back into the promised land. But it's a promise. It's not conditional. It's not based on obedience or, or merit or good works. God is just going to do it out of his gracious character because he loves his people. Um, so this is the gospel. Do you see how significant and important this is? Um, and it's not that they're going to come back sort of limping back, you know, all wounded and bruised, but it's going to be a full restoration. It's going, to, uh, it's going to mean, first of all, the forgiveness of sin, because remember, the problem with exile is that it was dealing with the consequences of sin, so it's going to be the forgiveness of sins, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Why? Because God's presence is with his people again. Um, the Davidic king will reign So let me write all of this down. There's going to be forgiveness of sin. The temple will be rebuilt. Very important. And then the Davidic king. Basically, David's son, the promised son, will reign. And he will reign in righteousness. There will be peace and prosperity. All of the enemies will be subdued. There'll be, and it, it'll be just this wonderful thing, and this will then truly be the new heavens and the new earth. That's the story. Does that make sense? Um, so that's the context, and now we're going to dive into the books. Any questions on just the overall paradigm, the overall story? Yes, Winnie. So with the promised land, and then Abraham coming down with the commandments. Is you mean Moses? Yeah. yeah. Yes. But it's meant to be that we a, re, the, right? a re-dramatization of Adam in the garden. Right, that we could not do it by, we can't say Human effort, that's right. But 
that's why a lot of Old Testament is highlighting that we are failing works. That's right. Because the grace didn't come in until we... Right, so, so, so the promised land and then the subsequent exile, this is all the result of works. Does that make sense? It's a works paradigm. Right? They disobey exile. Yeah. But then the return is gospel. Right. Yeah. It makes sense of like why this Old Testament sounds like it's all about works. Yes. Because we obviously fail it. Yes. And Pharisees try to follow it, but yes. in the wrong heart. So, so we'll, when, we, when we get to the prophets, we're going to have two full weeks, two full lessons on all the prophets, first major prophets, minor prophets. All the prophets virtually follow this exact same pattern, which is the first half of the, of the, of the book is all about um, either warnings or like you had it coming, right? Um, you disobeyed. It, it's like listing out all the different sins. And then punishment is going to result exile. But then the second half of the prophet, uh, of each prophet book is always, but there's going to be a restoration. God is going to bring you back. It's going to be even better than ever. This full renewal and uh, peace and joy. Good question. Any, any other questions or comments? All right, let's dive in. Uh, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time in 1 Kings, but um, we'll see how far I can get. I've already decided for myself that I'm willing to let go of Esther. <laughs> I'm willing to drop Esther. So we'll see. It depends on how fast I go. Because I think Esther, relatively speaking, um, is not as important to the full story. All right. Um, I know, heresy. All right. Um, first and Second Kings. So uh, actually, First and Second Kings is one book. Um, it just didn't fit into a full scroll, so it's split into two scrolls. Um, so it's a single story. It's written during. So here's here's the important thing. When was First uh, and Second Kings written? Um, it ends with um, it ends with uh, the exile. It ends like this, right? It doesn't talk about this. So we believe 1 Kings was written somewhere around here. And so then that helps us to understand what Kings is for. It's addressing the exiles who have just experienced the destruction of, Israel, of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the trauma of everything going on. And so then Kings is going back and looking at the whole history and trying to provide an explanation, right? Um, and it's important for us to realize that, you know, for us, the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a siege of Jerusalem. And uh, the description of the siege when the Babylonian army is surround, waiting for the city to fall, it lasted for a year, it was a terrible, traumatic experience. Um, the, there are descriptions in the Bible of mothers eating their own children to survive the famine. Which, I mean, the, the siege was terrible. So the people are in shock. And I just want to read a little bit of Lamentations chapter 3, not in your handout. But just to give you a sense of the trauma of this, this is written by uh, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in the city at the time. He experienced it. Um, he writes five chapters of just weeping. He's known as a weeping prophet. Listen, just listen to a flavor of this. Lamentations chapter 3. He made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead, right? So this brings us to a huge, deep theological problem because the exile seems to negate and annul all the promises that God had made to King David and to Abraham. So let me just recite what those were. 
God comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham, which, which means promise means it's not conditional. It doesn't depend on Abraham's obedience. God is going to do it because of who he is. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And then I will give you this land, the land of Israel, the land, the, the, the promised land, forever and ever and ever. You will never lose it. Then God comes to David. He says, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom. Your son will sit in such um, and reign forever and ever. Your family dynasty will never end. And then you have the exile. And the exile, the, the land is taken away, right? It's now ruled by these foreigners. And then the Davidic line, the Davidic kingship ends. So it seems like all of these promises that God gave are, are, uh, are annulled. And instead, what you have is the enemies of God crowing in victory. And we talked about, you know, who, who are the enemies? The enemies represent um, the forces of Satan, the dominions of Satan. Uh, I'm sorry, the minions of Satan. And so uh, it seems like Satan has won. So Kings is addressing that. And Kings' answer, the book of Kings' answer is twofold. Number one, exile is the result of the people's unfaithfulness. Uh, it's not that God is not in control or that he has been defeated. Um, far from it. In fact, um, the invasion is part of God's plan all along. And God is punishing sin. But the second part of the answer is that God promises a restoration. So all the promises that God gave to Abraham and God gave to David will come true. Not just come true, but it will come true in an extremely full way. In a bountiful way beyond, what he, beyond even the dimensions of what he promised. So let's break down the argument. Let's look first at the kings. Um, so if you look at the long history of kings, it shows you, first of all, you always need to be reading kings in light of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we're looking for David's son, right? We're looking for this king who will come and reign in righteousness. And so every king that you read about, you're thinking, is he the one? Is he the one, right? Um, but it, it begins with uh, the story of Solomon. Um, oh, so let, let, let me say again, um, this is a long history and it's supposed to show us God's patience because unfaithfulness deserves exile, but he doesn't, the exile doesn't happen for a long, 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 long time. So it shows you God's long suffering. So the first king is Solomon. This is David's son. Solomon's kingship begins extremely well. You know, famous story. He asks for wisdom. God says, I'll give you anything you want. Do you want money? Do you want you want a long life, you want to uh, conquer your enemies. Solomon asks for wisdom, and then there's that wonderful story of the two prostitute women who are fighting over a baby, and Solomon is able to know which is the true mother. Um, Solomon wrote pro most of Proverbs, Song of, Song, Song of Solomon, um, maybe, perhaps, Ecclesiastes. We'll talk about that when we get there. Um, so he's extremely wise. Um, under his reign, the people are prosperous. There's this great line in 1 Kings where it says, um, everything in Solomon's house was made of gold. Nothing was in silver because in Solomon's day, silver was like nothing. It was garbage. <laughs> you just throw silver out because everything was in gold. It's, so it's, it's a picture of incredible prosperity, right? The people are doing well. It shows the Gentiles streaming in to pay homage. There's the famous story of the Queen of Sheba. She comes and she's like, wow, amazed that Solomon, such a righteous, godly king, you know, reigning over his people. And then Solomon very significantly builds the temple. This is a very important thing um, because uh, uh, this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The, the king, David's son will build this temple at, um, in which God's people 
will rest, you know, in the presence of God. This is, by the way, why um, every, every, everyone who tries to be the Messiah or tries to hold on to the mantle of the Messiah must build, must build the temple. Very significant. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But um, this is why King Herod, Herod the Great, builds the temple, or he, 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 um, he improves the temple, because he's trying to say, I'm the Messiah, right? But anyways, um, but then what happened, and so for a while, it seemed like under Solomon, 2 Simon chapter 7 is coming true. This is it. This is David's son. And when we say David's son, it was literal. It was his actual son. It's finally coming true, right? For a, for a while, it seemed like at last, but it is not to be. Um, Solom- Solomon's uh, reign spirals downward, and namely, he marries foreign princesses. Um, there's this incredible figure. He has 700 wives, 300 concubines. So he has a th- essentially 1,000 wives. I do not understand how you could possibly do that. Um, but it shows you that Solomon's heart is taken away. Um, there's this really poignant line where it says, Solomon loved the Lord. And then a few chapters later, it says, but Solomon also loved his wives. And his foreign wives, his pagan wives, lead his heart astray. This is not in your bulletin, but I mean in your handout, but let me read this to you. First Kings eleven four, listen to this. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So this is a, a huge reoccurring theme throughout the book of first and second Kings. Whenever kings marry foreign princesses, it ends up that that foreign princess who worships other gods will turn the king's heart away from God. And so it, I think it reinforces to us the importance of marrying a fellow believer. You, you, you start out by saying, I'm going to convert the other believer, but the, other, the, 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 the non-believer, but the non-believer ends up taking your, your heart away from God. Um, but let's go on. So, so Solomon begins this downward spiral, right? So this is, so here we are. Um, then his son Rehoboam, who is basically a boastful idiot, um, the people come, because the other thing about Solomon is that he enslaves the people to do all of his building projects. Like even to build the temple, he, he, he institutes slavery among his own people, which was directly forbidden, Deuteronomy chapter 18, right, about what a king should and should not do. So it just already tells you things are going bad, right? Solomon is not the David's son, the son of God that we're looking for. But anyways, the people come to Rehoboam complaining, grumbling. Oh, we're we're heavy laden, right? All these building projects. There's another little detail, which is um, Solomon, it says Solomon built the temple. I forget how long it took him, like 10 years. And then he built his palace, took double the years. And his palace is twice the size of the temple. So it just shows you where Solomon's heart is. Anyways, the people are grumbling, complaining. So they go to Rehoboam. And Rehoboam should then be humble and say, you're right, I want to be a righteous king, not like Solomon, but like my grandfather David. Remember his famous line, little punk? He says, you think you had it tough before. My pinky is thicker than my father's waist. My father whipped you with whips, but I will whip you with scorpions, right? So what happens? The kingdom split. So, um, so this is kind of the difficult nomenclature, but the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is, southern kingdom is called Judah, okay? Um, then the, the first northern kingdom is Jeroboam. God says, all right, we're going to start fresh. I want you to obey me. I want you to follow after me. 
But remember what Jeroboam does, he establishes um, two rival worship sites at Dan and Bethel, um, in which he establishes golden calves. <laughs> um, I remember this story in Exodus, right? So he, he, go, he, he immediately begins his, the northern kingdom's reign in uh, idolatry. And then the worst of the northern kingdoms was Ahab. He marries a foreign princess. Again, same theme, Jezebel. She's a princess from Sidonia. And uh, she brings with her the worship of Baal. And so under Ahab, see, whereas at least in Jeroboam, when he established the golden calves, he was saying, this is the Lord your God. This is Yahweh as, an, as a golden calf. But um, Ahab said, no, I don't believe in Yahweh. I believe in Baal. And he tried to persecute and wipe out the worship of Baal. And so what you have in Israel is basically 19 kings, virtually all of them evil and bad, with one exception, which is Jehu. Jehu is the one who is anointed by, um, uh, is it Elisha? Elisha? No, Elijah. Um, he's anointed by Elijah, and he wipes out Ahab's whole family. And he starts out good. He, he, he wipes out the worship of Baal. But then he goes back to doing what Jeroboam did, which is the golden calves. So Israel, bad record. What about Judah? Judah had 20 kings. Um, eight of them were mixed to good. Twelve of them were evil and bad. So basically you have intermittent good kings, but basically a long slide into evil. Um, of the eight mixed good kings, four of them were very good. That was, uh, those were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Hezekiah and Josiah are by far the two best of the kings. Um, uh, almost unblemished record. Hezekiah was this courageous king who stood up against the uh, Assyrians. And then Josiah discovers the law. He institutes reforms. So those are two fantastically good kings. But the whole point of the story is too little too late. Because what happens with Hezekiah is after he dies, his son becomes king. His son is Manasseh. If you guys are familiar with 1st and 2nd Kings, you know Manasseh is the worst king of Judah that there ever was. Right? He's basically like Ahab come back to life. He worships Baal. In fact, he takes the temple. He wipes out all of the, uh, the furnishings of you know, all the, the symbolism for God, and he puts the statue of Baal inside the temple of, Israel, of, Jude, of Jerusalem, and he makes it a worship site for, for Baal. He practices a child sacrifice. So that's the story. And so the whole point, as we're reading accounts of, the, of these terrible kings, is we're looking for the Messiah, David's son, and we're basically realizing none of these are it. We need a, a true king who's coming. Um, let me read you, this is in the handout, let me read you 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17 tells you the story of the Assyrians sacking Samaria, which is the capital of, Jeru of Israel, and uh, the people taken into exile. The whole chapter is a long, long explanation for why the exile happened. I just gave you a small snippet, listen to this, verse 11. And the people did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. So there it is, right? The people, it was because of the people's unfaithfulness, and yet God sent prophets. So here we turn to prophets. Um, this is sort of the age of prophets. And uh, God sends his prophets to warn his people. Um, and whereas before the prophets used to sort of um, be partners with the king, think about Nathan. Right, Nathan and David were very chummy. 
you know, David would, you know, think about things and say, what do you think, Nathan? So they were like partners, right? Because David was a righteous king. Nathan is the voice of God. But then what happens is during the age of the, uh, during the first and second kings, the prophets now become outsiders, right? Elijah is the prime example. He's wandering around in the wilderness. He's eating locusts and honey, right? He's a wild man because he's not welcomed at court. In fact, he's a hunted man, right? So uh, the prophets, uh, then their role becomes uh, covenant prosecutors. Uh, what's a prosecutor? A prosecutor is somebody in a courtroom who levels charges at a defendant, says, you know, these are the evidences of your wrongdoing. That's what the prophets are doing. They're taking the Mosaic covenant, God's covenant, saying you've broken this, you've broken that, you, you need to repent. Uh, the most prominent prophets are Elijah and Elisha. They occupy about maybe 40% of First and Second Kings. Huge, huge narrative section. Elijah is the second half of First Kings. Elisha is the first half of Second Kings. And they are very significantly prophets to the north, to Israel, because Israel has the bigger problem of unfaithfulness. Um, but ultimately, they fail to turn back the hearts of God's people. Their mission fails, even though they're amazing prophets, right? Amazingly faithful, amazingly articulate. All these miracles surrounding their ministry, right? By the way, um, which gives you a sense of the role of, of miracles, God doesn't just indiscriminately give miracles. He, 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 th there are certain punctuated moments where miracles just come down to authenticate his word. The three periods are with Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and then Jesus and the book of Acts. But everywhere else in between, like the patriarchs, the exile period, no miracles. So he, he, he sends Elijah and Elijah, but to no avail. So we're going to read a passage. This is 1 Kings chapter 18. How are we doing in terms of time? Not so bad. Um, um, <laughs> I'm on page one and a half, and I have five pages. But we'll see. All right. Um, so... What happens in 1 Kings chapter 18? Let me just set it up. Um, Elijah enters the story. He just comes out of nowhere, by the way. It just says, one day, Elijah, the, the, the Tishbite, had the word of the Lord. And he announces there's a drought to King Ahab. This is during the reign of King Ahab, the worst of all kings. Um, and then uh, let me just read you the passage. And, and so what happens is then he says, let's have a contest between Baal and, um, and Yahweh, the God of Israel. So let me read to you, starting in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So um, that expression is very uh, uh, pregnant. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That's the whole story of First and Second Kings. The people want to have it both ways. They want to worship God, but they also want to worship God plus uh, Canaanite gods, idols, Baal, um, Ashtoreth. So Elijah says, enough. You have to choose. So he establishes this contest. And then let me just skip to the end. Um, fire comes down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice. And then the people are like, wow. They all say, Yahweh, he is the true God. And then they take the prophets of Baal. There were 450. They kill them. And then Elijah thinks, this is it. This is the repentance that I've been looking for, praying for. Do you know what happens? Nothing happens. 
Um, Ahab and Jezebel, their hearts are hardened. They don't change at all. They're still in power. Um, in fact, Jezebel finds out about the story and says, I'm going to kill Elijah. So he sent, she, she, she sets out a death warrant against him. So Elijah becomes so discouraged, he then flees, um, flees to uh, the land of Judah. He collapses by a river and he just prays to God, just take my life, just kill me. <laughs> I, my, uh, I failed. And then God takes Elijah to um, Mount Sinai. And remember that famous story? There was the wind, there was the earthquake, there was fire, but God was not in that. He was in this little low whisper. And it's trying to show us that um, through this whole story, uh, God is seemingly silent. God is seemingly weak and quiet, but yet God is still at work. Um, let's read 2 Kings chapter 11 now. Uh, let me set up the story. It's a little bit complicated, but um, let's see if I could do it. So we have to go back to another king, Jehoshaphat. Um, remember I said he was a good king, but all the good kings had mixed records. He decides to enter into an alliance with Ahab. Is that a good idea? I don't think so. <laughs> so his son, Joram, marries Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Athaliah is just like her mother, Jezebel. She's basically a pagan princess. So they marry, not a good idea. She turns his heart away. He dies after eight years. They produce a son, Ahaziah. <laughs> let, me, let me remember how to spell his name. Ahaziah. Um, he dies after two years. And so what ends up happening is Athaliah decides, I'm going to seize power. Um, so she, she takes Jehoshaphat, uh, Joram's uh, family. She wipes out all the brothers, all the sons, so she could be this queen regent all by herself. And then there's this wonderful, beautiful story. Let me read it to you. 2 Kings 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, so who is Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat is Jehoshaphat's daughter, right? I'm not going to write the whole thing. I'll just write daughter. Um, Jehoshaphat marries the high priest, uh, um, Jehoiada. So this is what happens to Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, Oh, I'm sorry, she's the daughter of King Joram, not Jehoshaphat. Okay. Um, sister of Ahaziah took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah so that he would not be put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, that's the temple, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Right? So it's a beautiful story. The, the family line of David is almost wiped out by this crazy, mad, pagan queen. But one little baby survives, Joash, hidden away in the temple of God um, for six years. What story does that remind you of? Mad, evil, pagan ruler tries to wipe out the Davidic line, but the baby is hidden away. What story does that remind you of? Yeah. So there you go. Um, so God preserves the Davidic line. Um, how does 2 Kings end? 2 Kings ends, chapter 25, it's this very strange ending. So it says the exile, everyone's weeping, everyone's sad, and the, the messianic line is also imprisoned. But then it says this really interesting line, just like three verses. It says that Jeho 
Jehoachin, who is, who would have been next in line, he's put in prison, but then for some reason, the Persian emperor releases him. He takes off his prison clothes. He sits at the king's table, and for the rest of his life, he eats with the king. And then the book ends. So what is that telling us? It's telling us the Davidic covenant, the hope is still alive, because the, 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 the descendant still lives, right? So that's First and Second Kings. Any questions? Yes? It doesn't say. Yeah, I think probably, like, psychologically, no threat. Let's, let's release him, you know. I'm bored sitting by myself. <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> and it's true. Jehoiachin is no threat. So, um, so let's go to First and Second Chronicles. Again, one book, but separated into two scrolls. So First and Second Chronicles has a perception of being the, one of the most boring books in the Bible. Um, and for good reason. Number one, it starts out with nine chapters of genealogy, uh, which is generally the, the, the killer of all pious people trying to read through the Bible. Um, but there's actually a really meaningfulness there because it focuses on the genealogies of two tribes, Judah and Levi. We'll get to that later, maybe, why that is. Um, but the other reason why it's considered boring is because it, it covers the exact same material as Samuel and Kings. So, you're, so let's say you're reading through the Bible. You read through Samuel, read, you read through Kings, you get to First and Second Chronicles, you read nine chapters somehow you read through the genealogy all the different names and then you're like wait a minute i just read this <laughs> right because it goes through the life of david solomon and everyone but let me just explain to you that um, this happens all the time in the bible which is that significant stories in the bible are repeated over and over um, for example um, you have the life of jesus four different accounts um, you have uh, the, the story of creation two chapters genesis 1 and 2 it goes back over it um, you have the story of Exodus, um, two accounts. You have the historical narrative, and then um, Miriam sings a song about it, right? So you have all the time two, two, two accounts or more accounts. So what are these? And then they have different angles. So what are they each saying? So King's emphasis, right? King's ends right here. This is where King's ends, right? Um, and King's emphasis is explaining why did the exile happen and then the hope of a future restoration, Second uh, first and Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles ends here. Um, it ends with Cyrus's decree. We'll, we'll get to that. But Cyrus is a Persian king, and he basically says the Jewish people go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. So the first and second chronicles was, was written after the restoration had happened. Does that make sense? And its emphasis is different. Its emphasis is during the restoration, it's saying there's going to be a fuller restoration to come, and it's talking about the coming Messiah. Because during the restoration, it's still under Persian rule. There is no Davidic king. So it's looking forward to those things. So where do we see that? We see that through all the differences between Chronicles and Kings. Number one, Chronicles, unlike Kings, in, if you read Kings, um, it toggles back and forth between Israel and Judah. It's a little bit confusing. That's what, if you ever want to read First and Second Kings, you really need to read it with a good study Bible. So you're constantly reminding yourself who is who. But Chronicles, see, Chronicles is so much simpler. It ignores entirely the story of Israel. It focuses only on the kings of Judah. Um, it, it, talks, it has no mention of David's sin, Bathsheba. It doesn't talk about Solomon's sin. It doesn't talk about his foreign wives. Um, there are no prophets in Chronicles. No prophets decrying the evils of the kings of Judah. 
So you're saying, huh, this is a whitewashed version of the history of kings. Not true. Um, kings, of course, is always in the background. You're supposed to read First and Second Chronicles having already known about the history of kings. And instead, it's focusing on the hope of the future Davidic king. Um, it's saying we're waiting for this Messiah. And so it's emphasizing David as an ideal king, not emphasizing his sins, but emphasizing his righteousness and saying that David is a model of the king to come. Um, okay, I'm going to skip that. <laughs> um, the other, the other thing is that Chronicles adds extra elements. Um, this is also why it's kind of considered boring. Um, instead of David's sin with Bathsheba, it has like, I forget how many chapters, like eight chapters or six chapters on long preparations that David makes for the temple, how he sets up all the, 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 the resources, he establishes all the worship, he assembles the, the Levites. Um, and so it's an emphasis on the temple. Why is that? Because remember, in the restoration, the temple was rebuilt. And so it's talking about the temple. And we have to understand, what is the temple? If you read, the best description of the temple is in First and Second Chronicles. If you read the description, it tells you several things. Number one, there's just gold everywhere. Gold is just inside, just splashed everywhere. Number two, all the carvings and all the decorations is botanical. Images of flowers, vines, uh, pomegranates. So what is that supposed to remind us of? Eden. Eden, if you read Genesis uh, 2, there's gold in Eden. There's garden imagery. And so it's showing us, this is the presence of God, and it's showing us that the temple is the place where the, God's people are supposed to go, draw near to God, repent, and be renewed. And ultimately, the point I want to make, if I don't get there, is that the temple, the physical building falls short. Jesus is the true, true temple. Do you guys remember how John 1 opens? The word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is the word tabernacled, which is another way of saying te a temple. Um, remember Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. So he was saying, I'm the temple. Do you remember in Revelation it says, in chapter 21 and 22, there is no temple, but the cent at the center was the Lamb of God. Um, the other thing about First and Second Chronicles is that there are lengthy prayers and speeches, unlike kings. Um, there are like prayers and speeches, but they're shorter. In Chronicles, they're like triple the length. Uh, the reason for that is that these are basically sermons encouraging the exiles who have returned to be faithful, to trust God, to seek his face. Um, so let me read to you. Let, I'm, I was going to read to you first, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 7 but I'm not, uh, for the sake of time. I wanted to read it to you because it's like nobody knows First and Second Chronicles except the most famous verse. Let me just read you the most famous verse. Verse 14, do you guys see where it is? It's chapter 7, verse 14. If my it's like a, um, a Michael Card song, right? <laughs> if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Who has not heard this verse before, right? Everyone has heard this verse before. So I just want to emphasize this verse is poorly interpreted and understood. Number one, it is not addressed to America. Um, <laughs> the land is not United States. It's the promised land. Remember, it has to do with this drama. And so God will heal the land. He's not talking about California through New York. He's specifically talking about this specific theological point 
of Canaan, the promised land, okay? Um, it's not a formula. That's what I really dislike about it. People interpret it as a formula. Oh, if the American people, we just gather around flags and pray and repent, then there's going to be economic prosperity. There's never that kind of formulaic understanding except for the promised land. And it's focused all at the temple. And ultimately, it's supposed to show us that it fails. This prayer failed. Um, who, who does the prayer? It's Solomon. Right? Solomon is dedicating the temple. The temple is destroyed. And even the second temple, which we'll talk about, is falls short of the reality. It's supposed to point us forward to Jesus Christ. I have so much more to say about that, but you are spared from my haranguing. All right, let's go to Ezra and Nehemiah. Any questions on second, first and second Chronicles? Yes. Yeah. And you're only halfway through. Yeah. Do you want to just like slow down and do a second class on the rest of this material? Uh, no. No. Because <laughs> next class is going to be all the wisdom poetry books. And then, um, all right, we'll continue. <laughs> Should I? I don't know. But then it'll be like 66 books in 11, in 11 so weeks. It's so unpoetic. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. You, you convinced me. All right. All right, all right. Because I have questions. Oh, you do? Okay. There is no temple now. Right. right. So I'm like, wait, temple was a big symbolism. Like, I'm trying to dig back and can you... Explain more the temple. Okay. Yeah, so let's go back to the temple. Okay. Um, so the, the fullest description of the temple is in Second Chronicles. Um, Second Chronicles is the story of Solomon. Again, Second Chronicles completely skips on Solomon's sin, which is... Uh, all of his foreign wives. And instead it focuses almost all of its um, narrative energy on the description of the temple, his dedication of the temple. By the way, Solomon's prayer of dedication is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the Bible. Um, and it really is sort of um, this, this dissonant experience because you know Solomon ultimately apostatizes and fails. And yet he had this incredible promise at the beginning. Um, and he was, at the beginning, fulfilling his role in the Davidic covenant, which is, remember, David came to, David says, I want to build a house for God. And then Nathan says, go ahead, do it. You know? But then afterwards, God comes to Nathan, and then he tells Nathan to tell David, you will not build me a house, I will build you a house. Um, house there is symbolic for a dynasty, right? Um, he's talking about the coming of the Messiah. And then the, the Messiah will build the temple. And that's very significant because, again, what does the temple mean? The temple means God is with his people. God is present. Because all the temple imagery is that um, even the structure of the temple, right, there are layers. There's the outer court, which only um, Israelites can uh, enter. Then there's the temple itself, which only Levites can enter. And then there's the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest once a year can enter. So those layers of um, inaccessibility is emphasizing the holiness of God. 
But then if you look at the temple imagery, everything is covered in gold. Again, precious metals pointing to the Garden of Eden. It's specifically cited there was gold in Eden. So gold is associated with the presence of God. Um, if you look inside the temple, um, there was, the, um, there was the, the menorah, the candles. They were constantly burning. And then there was no outlet to release the smoke. So the temple was constantly shrouded in um, a smokiness. So it gave you this kind of, um, it gave you this kind of uh, spaceless feel as you entered the temple, um, which is actually, by the way, is really remarkable because the majority of Israelites never entered the temple, but they, it was described to them, so they had to imagine it. But it's just this sense where there was a, the menorahs are shaped like what? The, the candles. They're shaped like, what, what, what does this look like? Trees. They're trees, right? So you see trees all around. You see all along the walls. You see images of vines and pomegranates and um, flowers. You're in a garden, a golden garden. You're back in the presence of God. So what is the meaning that the Messiah builds the temple? It means that the Messiah will truly bring God's people into the presence of God. And everything that's connected with it, um, what's connected with it is um, righteousness in the land, justice, there won't be any more evil, there won't be any more disobedience, there won't be any more worry about enemies, all the enemies will be subdued, He'll be this, uh, there's this incredible imagery in Daniel, for example, talking about the Davidic king, where do you guys remember um, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this multi-layered statue of all the empires of the world, but this little rock that was uncut by any human being falls down, crushes the empires of the world, and then the rock grows and grows until it fills the whole world. What is that saying? It's saying that the Messianic king, his empire will rule over the whole world. And so... Um, so the fact that the Messiah builds the temple is significant in that the Messiah would truly bring about the reality that God's people will rest in God's presence. That doesn't happen until Jesus Christ. Right? When Jesus comes, um, he actually is a walking temple. Right? Um, and he is with his people. And then it's interesting in the Bible, if you read, for example, um, Paul, um, he talks about... Uh, that we're, we're, we're all, um, if you read, for example, Peter, Peter says we're all living stones in the house of God. So because we're the body of Christ, the church then becomes the temple. So the church becomes this organic organization that moves around, spreads across the whole world, bringing the presence of God everywhere it goes. And then finally, you have Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it, it says very pointedly, very specifically, there is no temple, which would have been really shocking to Jews because temple is so, so important. There is no temple, but there's the Lamb of God. And because he's the temple. He was all along, that was the, that's right. He, all along the imagery is of the temple. And so we're going to look at the next class, Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to look at what is known as the second temple. By the way, the second temple is built by a, a man named Zerubbabel. We'll look at him. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiachin. So he is in the Davidic line. Um, very significant. Um, but we'll see that the temple, the second temple falls short. It is a ghost of the first temple, and it is nothing like the temple that was supposed to come, that was supposed to be prophesied. And so that's the whole thrust of, 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 uh, of this whole drama. Do you have further questions? Do you know how you said the north and the south get mixed up? 
Is that why I don't understand when you say Ahab is a king and then Jehoshaphat is a king also? Yeah, so, 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 so yeah, Ahab is the king of Israel. Um, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. For many years, um, they're at war with each other. But, but then Jehoshaphat and Ahab form an alliance. No, they're not. They're not. They're not. They're not. Jehoshaphat is in, the, is in David's dynasty. Ahab is, I forget, Omri. Omri is just... So basically, Israel has multiple dynasties. No dynasty lasts longer than like three generations. Um, Ahab is not son of... David. Son of Solomon. No. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, what happens is uh, northern Israel is taken into captive captivity by um, Assyria. So the ten tribes, these are ten tribes. The two tribes of the south, let's see who, let's, little Bible quiz, who, which are the two tribes of the south? Judah. Judah's one. What's the other? <laughs> Benjamin. Now, it's just called Judah, and this is the reason why. Because Benjamin is this tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic tribe compared to Judah. Who can tell me why? Yes, Samantha? Try. Yes, remember in the book of Judges, um, the, the, the Benjamites were reduced down to a 600, right? So uh, their, the, their proportion is, is probably like 1 to 100. So it, it's almost like, why even mention Benjamin? <laughs> so what happens is when the exile returns, when they come back, only three tribes come back. Judah comes back. What's left of Benjamin comes back. Hey, Benjamin's significant. Who is a significant Benjamite in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul, right. So, um, and then the Levites come back, right? Why the Levites? Because the Levites served the temple. So when the northern kingdom was wiped out, the Levites, many of the Levites were still around. And the Levites also, by the way, are not, they're like evenly distributed. They would like live in various places. So those three tribes only come back. And so we consider the ten tribes lost. They disappear. Um, Well, they're not in the tribe of Judah. But what ends up happening is that many of them are taken away to Assyria. They never return. And then the, the, the Israelites who remain, they stay and they intermingle and intermarry with, with, the, with other pagan peoples. And they become who? Who do they become? Samaritans. Yeah, they become the Samaritans. That's right. Yes. So, so in a sense, God does rescue the ten tribes of Israel through Samar Samaritans. Yes, this is why the, the diaspora, the people are called Jews. Starting with the Persian exile, they're called Jews. Jews is just a derivation of Judah. Judites, Judah-ish people, Jews. So the Jewish people are basically only three tribes. Levi, Judah, and Benjamin. And of the three, like 80% is Judah. Yeah. All right, let me, let me close in prayer. Um, thank you. Good suggestion, Christina. I was going to go, uh, yeah, you needed a backup. I was going to barrel through. This temple was very good. Temple is important, yeah. You're right. Temple cannot be skipped. Yeah. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, opportunity, this class. Thank you for um, telling us over and over again through multiple imagery, multiple stories about the story of grace, the story of Jesus Christ, the true king, the king that we've been waiting for, the king that, that um, century after century 
your people were waiting for, and, and now we have him, and he reigns, and we're looking forward to his future reign. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.